0: 2 Timothy chapter 4, I'm going to read verses 1 through 8, 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting at verse 1, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship. and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Verses 1 and 2 are directed at pastors, elders, and teachers in the church. In fact, when I was ordained, those two verses were the uh, basis for the speaker who spoke to those who were being ordained. Verses 3 and 4 are a warning to all of us about the all-too-common downward spiral of Christians in godly churches over time. Verse 5 returns to dealing with pastors, elders, and teachers in the church, and verses 6 through 8 give us a picture of the confident hope godly Christians have for life after death. Let's pray. Father, as we do week after week, the request is that you will speak to us. Give us ears to hear, minds to grapple with and make sense of and understand how to apply what you have to say to us. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In verse 1, Paul provides four motivating reasons for Timothy to do what he is telling Timothy to do in verse 2. I want to just run through those four motivating reasons. The first motivating reason is that Paul is saying God and Christ Jesus support his solemn charge to Timothy. He's not just saying this on his own account. He makes this claim uh, that Timothy is to do these things, he makes this claim confident that God supports what he's telling Timothy to do. And that's a good motivating reason. And that truth applies to all of us. When we are serving God in the church, we are not serving ourselves. We aren't just serving the people. But we are serving our Lord Jesus Christ, first and foremost. And for some of us, we have a clear call. For some of us, we're volunteers. For some of us, that's what we think we're equipped to do or want to do. Regardless how we get into these positions, how we begin to serve, it is God and Christ Jesus, first and foremost, that we serve. And then the people. The second motivating reason is this. Paul uses the coming judgment of the living and the dead to motivate Timothy to do his part well. And I think there's two lessons in that for us. First, a day of judgment or reckoning is coming. And no one is exempt. You aren't, I'm not. And just to give you two scriptures to support this, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 says, For we must all, doesn't say most of us, some of us, or just pastors, or just those who are regular attendees of at church. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, that is, during this life, according to what he has done whether good or bad and romans 14 the second half of verse 10 and then i'll skip to verse 12 for we will all stand before the judgment seat of god so then each one of us will give an account of himself to god simply said since we will be judged in this way it's really wise to make a sincere effort to live and serve according to the will and word of God. We should make a good effort. The second lesson from this second motivating reason is that when serving God in the church, our part is to do our part well. God's part is to enable us, equip us, and empower us for the work and also to take care of the results that come from our part. We are not to evaluate our part solely, mostly, on the results. Certainly the results should be taken into account, and as I've said to you in the past years, I've learned on you. I've grown up on you. I have hopefully matured on your time your money you've had to bear with me during this process and that's true for anybody who gets into leadership whether a pastor elder teacher bible study leader none of us start out uh, all perfect and maybe none of us wind up perfect either but none of us start out all perfect and mature and knowing all the things we need to know, we get there. And we get there while serving other people along the way. So, God has his part. Let us allow God to do his part while we do our part well. Serve well. Leave the results, the outcome of all that, in God's hands. Let him decide what he's going to do with it. And this... Truth, in my opinion, is confirmed in First Corinthians chapter three verses six through seven, where Paul writes I, Paul, planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. They're not the most important ones. They're they matter, please. But God who causes the growth, that's the important. So when church leaders manipulate the gospel or their followers to get the results that they want, results that probably gratify their earthly views or their need for success, what they're doing is kind of setting God aside, taking matters into their own hands and working the church for their own personal gain, not for God's glory and the health of the church. And my exhortation to each of us as we serve either one another or serve the whole group or serve in other capacities as a servant of God, let us do our part well and leave the results to God. The third motivating reason is this. Paul reminds Timothy that Jesus will return, which means there's a limit to the amount of time available to teach the word of God, to speak the truths of God, to those around us and for them to hear in order to respond in faith to the truths of the word of God and that limitation of time ought to motivate us to be diligent in doing our part now I realize that it's easy to say the return of Christ has been prophesied for 2000 plus years and he still hasn't returned what's the rush Well, we don't know when he's going to return. But that's not the only limitation on time. You're not going to live forever either. And there's a limitation on your time just from that perspective. Add in all the responsibilities that the adults in this room have. That's another limitation on our time. We don't have endless time to be speaking the truth of God's word And calling people to that truth, we have no endless amount of time. We have a limited amount of time. And because of that, we should be motivated to make the most of the time. The fourth motivating reason is Paul tells Timothy that all this work is for Christ's kingdom. It's not for our kingdom. It's not just for other people's sake. It's for Christ's kingdom. And that is the only kingdom that can save us from ourselves, save us from the penalty of sin, and the only kingdom that lasts forever. That's his fourth motivating reason. So when it comes to talking to the people around you, whether it's family members, neighbors, extended family, friends, co-workers, people you meet in the store, you're waiting in a long line to get up to the crash register, What motivates you to talk to them about God's truths? In verse 2, Paul tells Timothy what and how he is to do this work. Preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. So I'm going to paraphrase that just for your sake and my sake too. Here's my paraphrase. It's a rather long paragraph, but that's what paraphrases are about. Openly and publicly teach and speak about the Word of God, and especially the parts about God's worthiness to be trusted, eternal salvation, and godly, sensible living. Be prepared so that you can do this anytime, anywhere, With anyone. Reprove, rebuke, and even exhort. And do this with whomever will listen. There's a number of people who won't listen. Be aware of that. That's the reality. Do this with whomever will listen, showing them the error of their ways. And how to live a godly life in the midst of a sinful world. However, do this with great patience, knowing how you once loved the ways of selfishness and sin. You know, they're not begging you to change them, to show them the error of their ways, to uh, lead them to the path of life. So do it with patience knowing how you loved the ways of selfishness and sin and how you resisted the truth of God and his word, how you believed that no good could come from repenting and living a God-pleasing life. The sinful way is the better way. That's what most people believe. And so respectfully, gently, and prayerfully state and restate, talk and talk again about... The truths of God and his word and do this just with the hope, just the hope that it will be understood and applied. It may, it may not be, but at least we have sown the seed. And for me, that's motivation enough. Sow the seed. Again, it's up to God what happens to that. It's up to the person in whom the seed is sown what happens with that. I've at least sown the seed. There are two things in this verse that I think apply to all of us. First of all, be prepared. Don't go into your day unprepared. Don't go to the grocery store unprepared. And I'm not talking about taking tracks with you or uh, having a website that you can direct people to. All of that's good and, and that's fine but be prepared to talk to people. One of the intriguing things to me is that of all the points in history up to this very day that God could have chosen to send Jesus Christ, he sent him at a time when logic and reason were on the rise because of the Greeks and at a time where there were roads because of the Romans. He could have sent Christ in the last 20 years with the advent of the internet and the ability to communicate in a universal way to billions of people all at once. But he didn't. I don't know if you've ever wondered why. I have. And I don't know that I have the right answer, but my answer is, it's satisfying to me, There is nothing better than face-to-face communication. Jesus talked to people face-to-face. Even when there was a crowd there, he was talking to them. It wasn't via, again, these are all methods that have been useful, but he wasn't using the radio, he wasn't using the television, he wasn't using the internet. He met people and we meet people. Be prepared to talk to them yourself face to face. I think that we do meet people in line at stores or other various places and unexpected conversations can come up and you can be part of helping those conversations come up and it doesn't have to be obnoxious or asking them uh, if they're born again. You can simply listen to their story and ask them questions about what they think what they value what they believe and that can lead into very naturally talking about the truths of God and his word but you have to be prepared to do that we had a gentleman that came to the church I grew up in he uh, was an evangelist and that was his gift I don't doubt that so what he did was very almost natural for him not natural for the rest of us but he would practice in his home talking to different people that he knew and met on a weekly or monthly basis for example he worked out a whole uh, dialogue that he could have with his barber or his butcher um, different people that he would meet He would, at home, figure out, practice this dialogue with these different people. Uh, That's a bit of preparation, and we're not likely to go that far, but we can at least go far enough to think things through, pray for wisdom, consider what we might say. Think about what we did say and how it sounded. Was it reasonable? Did it make sense to the person? Were we just using religious uh, jargon that they couldn't understand? Were we talking in a way that they could actually make sense of? Yeah, let's be prepared. And the second point in this paraphrase of verse 2 is we need to speak. Don't be just prepared. Talk. Talk to people. Speak to them. Your children, your friends, co-workers, neighbors, talk to them we have a neighbor who grew up in church but doesn't want God or church and he's made that very clear and our goal is not to become obnoxious but I do engage him in conversation and those conversations frequently involve values and beliefs that then I can bring in the word of God questions that I ask him about his own job Uh, The the situation that he's in, the people that he's dealing with, just opens the door to talking about God and the Word, in my opinion. It works for me. Speak. Be prepared and speak. We were just talking about limitations before we got to verse 2. So verses 3 and 4 state that with the passage of time there will be a decreasing number of people interested in or willing to hear the truth of God. I think we see this sickness already in the church today. There are pastors, teachers, and leaders who use the church system and the people to gratify their own selfish desires. They intentionally teach what will draw a crowd. I think that we should be well aware To draw a crowd, a large crowd mostly requires appealing to their flesh. And it's interesting to me that a lot of evangelism is built around appealing to the person's self-interest. You don't want to go to hell, you want to go to heaven, of course. Only a fool would want to go to hell. It's a place to start, I'm not saying that it's totally wrong. But the reality is, this is about God, not us. He is the focus, not us. He's the supreme one, not us. In the end, we are to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, not ourselves. And the reality is people have been and will continue to move away from that. And there will be people who lead the church in ways that will appeal to those folks who are moving away from that in order to get a large following. But it's also true that there will be church attendees who will hire pastors and teachers who will vote for leaders at the uh, annual elections. People who will turn the church system and the teachings in a direction that gratifies the attendees' selfish interests. It goes both ways, and Paul is making this point. He's made the point previously in his first letter and first part of the second letter that there's going to be false teachers. There's going to be bad pastors and leaders and teachers. We know that. But he's also pointing out that the people are going to be just as bad because they're going to want to hire Those who will tell them what they want to hear rather than what they need to hear. So the point here is that there will continue to be a decreasing number of people in the church, and I would say even in the world, who will listen to what you have to say about God and his word and how it applies to them. And that means... There's no better time than now to talk, to be prepared and talk. Now is a good time, because it's going to get worse and worse and worse. This is bad enough, but it's going to get worse. That's the point that Paul makes. Verse 5. Therefore we need to be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of evangelists, and fulfill our ministry. In this context, to be sober in all things is to think, speak, and act sensibly and godly in order to, first of all, set an example of godliness. That requires some serious thinking and effort on our part. And secondly, to give credibility to what we say about God and His Word. And third, in order to remain faithful ourselves to God and His Word. We are prone to be influenced by what is going on around us, we need to be sensible, to be thoughtful, to be careful, to be sober in all things. Otherwise, we can open ourselves up to influences that will push us in an ungodly, wrong direction, and we don't want to do that. So, it isn't just a case of thinking. It's a case of thinking carefully, seriously. I know that we like fun. I know that we like entertainment. I know that we like breaks. I know that we like uh, doing healthy things that can be enjoyable, and all of that can be good. Yet, we also need time to think seriously, to look at our lives seriously, To think about where we're going, why we're going in this direction, what we're doing, why we're doing that. To think about how we come across, how we're being heard, how the people around us are experiencing us, what they see in us. Do they see consistency? Do they see hypocrisy? What do they see? What do they hear? What do they experience? That takes serious thought, and you have to take time to do that. The second thing he says is to endure hardship. You have to be willing to pay the price for choosing to be godly in a world that is increasingly ungodly and in a church that is progressively moving away from their commitment to godliness and becoming more self serving, more tolerant of to sin, more worldly. We've. I've personally encountered two families both of them involved in Christian ministry who have a child who is involved in uh, a same sex relationship and this becomes very challenging am I are they, are we willing to pay the price to maintain a position without becoming disrespectful hateful, mean, unkind? Are we willing to pay that price? Because once you draw the line, you become an outcast. What is being asked for in these situations is not a friendly relationship, but support. Support for their position and activity. And if you don't give that support, then... There can be no relationship. If you're the parent, that can be very hurtful. Because it creates distance. And the parent doesn't want that distance. They want relationship with their child. Am I willing? Are you willing to pay the price? Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Well, most of us may not be evangelists in in the true sense of the word but we can call we can invite we can urge unbelievers to repent to trust in God and to live a godly life and then the last one is fulfill your ministry that is stay with it until you've finished what you've been called to do or have agreed to do or until you cannot do it any longer not all those who serve are called. Some willingly accept the responsibility. And that's good. But we still need to fulfill our ministry. Verses 6 through 8 provide a glimpse into the mindset and perspective of someone who has preached the word, who has been ready in season and out of season, who has reproved, rebuked, and exhorted with great patience and instruction someone who has been intentionally sober in all things and who has endured numerous hardships and persecution, who has done the work of an evangelist and who has fulfilled his ministry. That's quite quite a lot of things that that person has done. And so I want to point out that these verses are not a proclamation by Paul of what he deserves, as if he is now deserving of justification and the accompanying rewards, I believe it is a realistic confidence that he has attained a level of Christlikeness and served God well enough to be rewarded in addition to receiving the gift of God's grace, the gift of eternal life. My guess is, there is nobody in this room that could say they have the history of Paul. So we probably shouldn't rush to say what Paul says. You know, I've done all these things, I've finished the course, I'm ready to die and I'm confident there are rewards waiting for me. But we should at least be living a life that heads us in that direction. The idea of rewards for godly living is not unique to these words of Paul. There are some number of scriptures that speak to this. Let me just read three of them. James 1 12, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. 1 Peter 5 4, and this is talking about elders who serve well. Peter's writing, and when, and he says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you, those elders who rule well, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And Revelation 2.10, do not fear what you are about to suffer, writing to this church, behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death. And I will give you the crown of life. Jesus spoke of rewards in the Gospels. And so there is an appropriate biblically based confidence that we can have not only in God's gift of eternal life, but also God's rewards for service. And let's also be aware that there is a self deceived confidence among those who call themselves Christians. And Jesus points this out rather eloquently in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. I'm guessing you know that portion well enough. I don't need to read it. But the point is, is that many will have a self-deceived confidence when they stand before the Lord. They'll be wondering why their name is not in the book of life. And they're going to find out that that confidence that they had was misplaced. We are taught to have confidence based on our theology. Paul did not have confidence based on his theology, he had confidence based on his life. The history of Paul's life, as we know it, in my opinion, affirms that he was rightfully confident. So I asked myself, what does the history of my life say about me? Or better yet, what will the history of my life say about me when I stand before the Lord at the final judgment? What about you? In light of the difficult times ahead, my urging to all of us is to Make it our aim to live and serve in such a way as to be able to say at the end of our life, I fought the good fight reasonably well. I finished the course, at least got pretty close to the end. And I've kept the faith.